Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Numa. I am, as always, your faithful host, Daniel Finneran. To your warm and unflagging companionship, dear friend and listener, I am and shall forever remain deeply grateful. It has been a source of unspeakable joy in my life in which I never tire of basking. Thank you so much for joining me and supporting this channel. Still in its infancy, Numa has grown from an uninspiring zero subscribers to a mighty Baker's dozen because of you. My modest hope is that we continue to grow together and strengthen the bonds of friendship that we've been so lucky to forge. That said, please consider subscribing to this channel and joining our growing community. You can visit my website, numameditations.com, on which you can enter your email address to receive a free weekly wellness newsletter. Aside from that, be sure to like this episode and more importantly, to share it with a loved one and a close friend. And, as always, I encourage you to gather your thoughts and write down your comments below. I'd like to know what you're thinking. You can also send me a note directly at Numa dot finnerin at gmail dot com to which I will in all promptitude happily respond. Numa 
the inspiration for today's episode comes to us from an essay written by the great G.K. or Gilbert Keith Chesterton, an Englishman of unrivaled literary prowess and, I think, unacknowledged cultural significance. Chesterton, into whose profundity of wisdom and endless store of good common sense, I'm just now beginning to dip my eager toes, has already taught me many important things. I plan in the future to dive more deeply into his vast collection of works across a variety of genres that are, I'm glad to report, highly accessible and welcoming to all who approach them. I invite you in this episode and in your own personal readings to do the same. I can assure you, you'll not be disappointed. The essay atop which we'll build today's meditation was published posthumously in the year 1958. Chesterton died in the year 1936, long enough to witness and anticipate Europe's descent toward tyranny and war. Entitled On Being Moved, the essay deals with a mundane topic. Chesterton's move from the city into the country, a move to which Owing to his uncertainty of what he might find outside the high culture of Battersea in South London, he applied the word exile. Let us, for the moment, Follow Chesterton and take leave of our own inner city. Our 
city of worries, of deadlines, of anxieties, of self-criticism, or, God forbid, of self-loathing. Remove yourself, if only briefly, from the noise and din of this world. Quiet the clamor and step away from the incessant storm, the unfriendly tempest that swirls about your head. All I want you to do is be seated right where you are and breathe. Take count of yourself right where you are and breathe. Let us retire into the quiet country of the mind. Close your eyes. Focus on your breathing. It should be slow, not shallow. Regular, well-ordered, and, above all, mindful. As you listen to me, I want you to notice the stillness around and within you. You should be seated, if possible, on a chair. I want you to feel a sense of calm as though you were immersed in nature. Imagine you're seated on the soft, dewy grass covering a hill where no one can reach you.
Imagine you're in the cool, shady forest, far away from the heat and bustle of the world. Imagine you're in the English countryside, somewhere on the verdant banks of Grasmere Lake from which the ghosts of the great poets drink their fill, and the muses, whenever they're away from the Pyrian spring, draw their inspiration. As a team of burly, muscle-strapped movers works to pack up and ship Chesterton's furniture to his country estate, the author experiences a sudden feeling of gratitude. I want to share in this gratitude. I want to feel it. Let's feel it together. The old mahogany desk atop which his papers are normally strewn and his fountain pen firmly set has been removed. It's gone. So too has his tall, sturdy bookshelf, into which countless volumes of leather-bound books and delicate manuscripts were neatly piled. It too is gone. The walls, once adorned by family portraits and heroic scenes of antique battles, have been stripped of their embellishments and restored to their primeval, boring, beige. The curtains on his windows have been cut away. He proceeds to move away from their glowing panes through which the sun dances before warming his face and take a seat on the only thing that remains in the emptying room. His chair. As we follow Chesterton's lead on this meditation, I want you to think about three things and three things only. My voice, 
your breathing and your chair. My voice, your breathing and your chair. Deprived of a desk and with it the centerpiece of his comfort and study, Chesterton says the following. I sit down on the chair and try to write on my knee, which is really difficult especially when one has nothing to write about. I feel strangely grateful to the noble wooden quadruped on which I sit. The noble wooden quadruped on which he sits. I will henceforth never fail to refer to my chair by that regal name, of which I think it's well deserving. A noble wooden quadruped, a title with which we should all crown our chairs. Chesterton then asks, Who am I that the children of men should have shaped and carved for me four extra wooden legs besides the two that were given me by the gods? Has not nature provided for our needs? Are we not fully equipped to operate in this world as we are? Have we not, in the uniqueness of our graceful human structure, appendages equal to the task of living? Chesterton's remark, you'll note from prior episodes, is one with which the Stoics would resonate. They believed, rightly so far as it goes, that nature, in all her bounty, provides for us that we should try our very best to live in conformity with her. Now, we get to a profound insight. Chesterton says, For it is the point 
of all deprivation that it deprivation sharpens the idea of value and perhaps this is after all the reason of the riddle of death Wow, this line strikes me. It's one on which we might linger for a moment. The whole point of deprivation, Chesterton tells us, is to enhance our appreciation for things now gone. As the timeless and true saying goes, it's not until we lose something that we begin in all sincerity to value it. I think Joni Mitchell in her song Big Yellow Taxi put it best. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Think about it. Health means precious little to the healthy man. To the indisposed or infirm, it is, as you know from having been sick at one time or another, supremely valuable. Think about this as it pertains to your own life. Have you been deprived of something lately? Anything, large or small? By whose sudden and unexpected loss a higher level of appreciation was aroused? Maybe a storm passed through your neighborhood and caused the electricity in your home to go out. You were, for a while, deprived of power. It's only at that moment, when the sun is beginning to fall, the room is darkening, and the refrigerator is no longer humming. You really begin to appreciate what's missing.
deprivation undoubtedly sharpens the idea of value. After having been deprived of electricity for a day or two, the hour of its restoration is marked as something near a world historical event. It's celebrated as a sacred festival and commemorated as a holiday. Chesterton mentions at the end of that line, the riddle of death. Is not death, in some very real sense, the ultimate deprivation toward which we're all headed? The end from which there's no escape. Death deprives us of life. At the very least, it deprives us of our physical, material life in this world. We may go on to enjoy another, somewhere high above in the celestial spheres. But for evidence of that undiscovered country, we'll just have to wait. Thus, death the ultimate deprivation serves to sharpen our value of life, just as a power outage sharpens our value of a light switch that works. It is the dead or the dying to whom life is most valuable. Chesterton goes on. In a better world, perhaps, we may permanently possess and permanently be astonished at possession. In some strange estate beyond the stars, we may manage at once to have and to enjoy. But in this world, through some sickness at the root of psychology, we have to be reminded that a thing is ours 
by its power of disappearance. How true this is. In this world of abundance in which we have the good fortune to live, we possess a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot. Indeed, in many cases, not excluding my own, we're completely overrun by our possessions. We have closets, entire rooms, cupboards, and extra freezers filled with stuff. And when that stuff overflows its boundaries, we put it in garages, basements, attics, or sheds. When they too are exhausted of their space, we rent storage lockers and erect pods in our driveways into which everything can be shoved. And yet, how many of your possessions do you truly appreciate? How many do you sincerely enjoy? By how many are you astonished, filled with gratitude, made to feel content and happy? I bet that you can only think of a few. Probably no more than a couple. If we are to have, we must also learn to enjoy. It's wrong that we only begin to appreciate and enjoy a thing when it's gone. Now, we come to a passage that really moves me. I wonder if it will move you as well. Seated on his chair, Chesterton reflects on his situation and says, I begin to be moved. I perceive that there are many mysteries concealed in that kitchen chair. That kitchen chair may truly be called the chair of philosophy. I stride up and down the room, rejoicing in the divine meaning of chairs. I wave away with wild gestures, 
that merely dingy and spiteful democracy which consists in declaring that every throne is only a chair. The true democracy consists in declaring that every chair is a throne. Indeed, every chair, no matter how crudely constructed, is a throne. Having been deprived of all his other possessions and left to meditate in an empty room, he finally realized this to be true. Confer upon your chair some importance, and it will be important. Acknowledge its inherent utility and goodness, and it will bring you contentment. Above all, be grateful for what you have. Be thankful for your possessions no matter how modest they may be. Raise them in your estimation. Regard them more highly, even if they aren't normally highly regarded. Consider life without them. And, having so considered that existence, sharpen their value. Sit on your chair, that noble wooden quadruped by which, with quiet stamina and un questioning loyalty, your weight is unfailingly supported, and call it a throne. For that is what it is, and you, for having so thought and named it, will be by extension, a veritable king or queen. For what state of mind could be nobler than a grateful one? Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. If you found this content to be thoughtful and useful, do consider subscribing to this channel.
like this episode and share it with a loved one and a friend. Visit my other channel, Finnerin's Wake, on which I host an array of fascinating thinkers for long-term, long-form conversations. With that, fare thee well. From Numa.